The Apostle John walked closely with Jesus during all of his earthly ministry. He was used of God to give us a remarkable, intimate, powerful account of the ministry of Jesus. The Gospel of John was written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. John composed his Gospel to provide reasons of saving faith proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and offers the gift of salvation. He declares these things are written so that you may believe. If you open up your Bibles to John chapter 16, uh, we find ourselves in uh, the farewell discourse, as some call it, and essentially Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure, which is why the sermon's called Preparing for Departure, because that's what's going on here, and he's going to be telling them about some things that are in their future. And he's about to rock their world in ways that they probably don't even fully realize in the moment. Because he's gonna give them a warning and then he's gonna talk to them about this helper that's going to come and help them and help the world in, in some ways. And we get to, uh, to read that and, and learn from that this morning. And so we're gonna break this up into, uh, into three big sections, basically, and, uh, and not read it all as, as one chunk here at the beginning, but we'll take it somewhat by, by paragraph here. And so let's take a look at the first four verses first as we start. John 16, verse one. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So Jesus says, this is, this is your future. <laughs> These are the impending dangers and things that you're about to face as I leave. And he points to two um, basic categories that they were about to face. They're about to face um, expulsion or excommunication from uh, uh, the synagogues and death. He says there is a time in which people are gonna put you to death and in their eyes, they're gonna be doing it as service to God that they are going to have a warped sense and a misguided attempt at serving what they see as God and they're going to do that by putting you to death and fighting against you. And we see this lived out in the life of, of Saul, slash later named Paul, who was a persecutor and then persecuted. That he was on the, the side of these people he's talking about here first. And he was seeking ways to destroy the people of the way. The ones who followed the way, the truth, and the life. And he was actually traveling to find followers of this way to put them to death. And his vanquishing of these enemies was seen as the pinnacle of his service to God. And yet, on his travel to find some of these people, we read in Acts about how he is confronted by the true God. And he switches sides. He goes from the persecutor to now part of the persecuted because he realizes that he was not really serving the one true God. He was part of this group that Jesus says, they wouldn't be fighting against you if they truly knowed me, but they don't know me, so that's why they hate you, because they hate me. And so we see this lived out in the life of Paul that uh, they will fight against you in the name of God, but it didn't stop there. The church has always faced people who are fighting against them in the name of God. 
a number of different gods. Whether it be some of the gods that Pastor Russell talked about last week, a, a more a specific god of some part of culture, or just some greater good that is the god that they are serving, the church fights against these gods. You see that our culture is living out the fullness of Romans chapter one. If you haven't read Romans chapter one recently, I would encourage you after, sometime this afternoon to read Romans chapter one. And what you'll see is as God gives them over to this passion and this sinfulness and their minds are warped and distorted by sin in this way, they, they, you see this, this process play out that we see in the world around us. Shouldn't be a surprise to us. At the end of Romans one, it says not only did they do these things, they approved of these things. These things aren't done in secret. They're done blatantly and openly and they are approving of the sins. You see, as believers in the world today, we are labeled as intolerant and hateful for espousing the values of God. That if we won't stay silent, or even one step further that, we're supposed to speak up and validate or approve. Staying silent isn't even okay sometimes. We have to approve of the sinfulness of this world. If we don't, we're labeled as intolerant and hateful. You see, because the gods of this world are driving the people of this world and the gospel that we proclaim is offensive. And it's becoming more and more offensive as time goes on. The gospel's always been offensive. All right? It's always been offensive for someone to hear that they are sinful, that they have sinned against God, that they cannot save themselves. There's no good you can do to outweigh the bad that you do, to make up for some righteousness in your own eyes, to have a relationship with God and spend eternity with him. It's offensive. You can't do it yourself. You're messed up. You sin against God on a regular basis. That's offensive. Always has been. But it's become more offensive today because our current culture has gone to the extent of saying that my self-expression, my, self, my sense of who I am, how I identify myself, being myself, self, 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 is the highest moral virtue that there is. It is the pinnacle of goodness. And everything that stands opposed to that is badness. Our world sees humanity as God. And so our message has become ever more offensive to a people who, who have not just gone from, okay, yeah, that's your opinion, no, to you now are stepping into this bubble and you are telling me that I... I'm simple. How dare you not, not first and foremost approve of exactly who I tell you I am and what I think is good and what my purpose is and all of these things. Don't you dare step in here and tell me that I am simple and in need of anything outside of myself. 
therefore follow the logic down the road and we see a saddening percentage of young believers in this country who believe it's wrong to share the gospel. The same gospel that they would claim has saved them, but it's morally wrong to go tell somebody else. What's their logic? Who am I to tell them that they're wrong? Who am I to tell them that their lifestyle is wrong? I'm no one special. Who am I to go in to someone else's world and pronounce truth? Well, I'll give in on one, on one point. Who am I? I'm, I'm nobody. <laughs> it's not about me or you. It's not about us pronouncing what we see as truth. It's about the fact that we as followers of Christ are people who walk through this world holding up this book and we are simply the messengers proclaiming the truth from the one who does have a right from the one person who can walk anywhere and tell anybody who they are because he created them. He gives us our purpose. He tells us who we are. Before you walk outside of this building and start to be fearful that who am I? I can't dare tell anybody else about what I think they're doing wrong. No. If you're adding to this, you're in the wrong. (laughs) But if you're walking up to somebody and espousing the truth and the love that God has for fallen, sinful man, it's not you, it's God. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting God. They're rejecting the truth that we are simply passing on as witnesses. See, Jesus was preparing his followers to walk into this war. We have a generation that we are attempting to prepare to send into this war, even though many of them are in the midst of the battle right now at their age. We wanna walk alongside you as parents in this church. We wanna help lay out what we believe to be a, a, a feasible logical strategy of discipleship within the home. And we want to help equip you and enable you to then carry that out. I don't think there's been a generation in recent church history that's actually done a good job of teaching its people and its parents how to disciple in the home. And yet it's always been a parent's job to disciple. Parents have always been the primary disciple makers. And we can't simply farm that out and delegate that to the experts. And I stand in front of you as the supposed expert of that, that you would delegate your kids to. What I can tell you is that the discipleship is happening in the home, whether we like it or not. There's a QR code at the bottom of the back of your handout that will take you to our Family Ministries website. It's one that y'all haven't seen because we haven't told you about it yet. It's new. It lays out some strategies, it lays out some tools and some resources, and we're gonna um, continue to aspire to equip you better and better and better as we try to walk alongside you as parents. Because if I ask you this question this morning, how well are we preparing our disciples to walk out into this battle? We would say, of course I'm doing that. 
but how much time are we truly spending in our homes for that purpose? And yet as a church, we're supposed to be doing this together as well. And this church is meant to be a family that strives together. And we can stand on the sidelines and just say, oh, kids these days. Oh man, I can't believe what these kids these days are doing. What are they thinking? What in the world is going on? And we can lament the supposed dropout rate of those who are walking away from the faith after high school, even though I will contend with that dropout rate and say that we are measuring the wrong people. We can do that from the outside or we can jump in and be a part of the solution. You see, you could say it's self-serving and it is. <laughs> For me to stand before you and say that my opinion, what I think should be true, is that our family ministries should never be having to seek out and find new volunteers because the body of Christ should be aspiring to build up itself especially the next generation, into followers of Christ, into disciples who think biblically, live missionally, give generously, and love sacrificially. That doesn't mean that everyone should serve in every ministry, <laughs> that every role is a good fit for every person, but if you would like to jump in and be a part of the solution, jump in and be a part of raising up a generation of disciples to prepare them for war, let us know. We'd love to find you the right spot for you. You see, because he is preparing them. He's telling them he's going to leave. Let's look at the next part of this passage this morning, verses four, um, the second half of verse four through verse seven. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asked me where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The disciples have just heard that the world's gonna hate you because they hated me. You're going to go forth and you're gonna get kicked out of the synagogues. You're going to get killed and people are gonna kill you in the name of God. You would predictably think they're probably a little saddened by that. They're a little upset. And Jesus addresses that right here. Because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And yet, he tries to change their perspective on it and flip it around and say, no, 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 but you don't understand. I'm leaving for your advantage. If I was a disciple sitting in that place right there, my only thought can be, that the thought that goes through my mind is one word. How? How in the world is the Son of God leaving us to my advantage? I mean, not that all this has been awesome. They keep fighting against us and not everything seems to be going great all the time. But how in the world can you leaving be for my good? In fact, many of us in this room have probably had a thought at one time or another of, man, I wish I could have just lived in the time of Jesus. It would have been so much better. It would have been so awesome if I could have just walked with Jesus literally in Israel. And yet Jesus tells his very disciples right now, it's to your advantage that I go because if I go and when I go after my job is finished and I go to the right hand of the Father where I'm supposed to be, the Holy Spirit will come after me. 
I will send him to you as a helper. And then he explains three things as a part of this ministry of the Holy Spirit. The first thing is the, the Spirit at, worked, at work in terms of conviction. Look at verses eight through 11. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judge. Convicting of those, of those three things. First, convicting, convicting of sin. And I've got some, some phrases in your, uh, in your handout that'll be on the screen to kind of help explain the differences between these, these convictions here. He says, convicting of sin because they do not believe in me. So in other words, the unbelief in who Jesus is it's not the only sin that the people were guilty of then any more than it's the only sin that we are guilty of. Many sins. Only one of them is necessary to send us to hell. But this sin specifically that he's speaking of here is the rejection of him himself. And part of this ministry of the Holy Spirit will, will be to convict people of this sin of rejecting Jesus, a sin that's just a little bit different than it was before his ministry. Secondly, the rejection or uh, the conviction of righteousness. In other words, I put in your notes, unbelief in who we are. This one's a little strange to, at first when we look at it. It says, Concern, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Now, what is in the world does that have to do with righteousness? That I'm going to the Father and it has to do with righteousness. I mean, it, it's, it's a little odd when you first look at it. But if you think about it, Jesus, when he's, um, when he's gone to the Father, he has been crucified, resurrected, and he's ascended to his right pla rightful place. In those actions, he is proving and validating everything that he said and did. His resurrection is the cornerstone of Christianity. He declared who we are declared our lack of righteousness and our unbelief in who we truly are through what he has revealed in scripture is what this conviction is about. It's really self-righteousness or a false righteousness. And the third one is judgment. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Satan, the ruler of this world is judged. He stands as being judged. The gods of this world also stand as judged. Jesus said in John 7, 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. You see, the world, and any of us pre-salvation in Christ, are blind and dead in our sins and we look around at this world and we, and we don't see it for what it truly is. We, we try to de decipher who we are and what our process is and that's what some of those gods were that we just talked about come into play. But conviction of judgment, the truth that this world stands judged is part of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. To see this world for what it truly is and convict of an unbelief in what this world is. Secondly, he talks about to leading them into truth. 
Verses 12 and 13, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. A part of the Holy Spirit's work is a um, unveiling or a leading into truth. The disciples at this time, when Jesus is saying these words, are far from ready to write the New Testament. They're still confused on some levels of who Jesus even is and wondering about what these events are that he's talking about. They didn't really fully understand the truth to the level that they are about to through the Holy Spirit. That when the Holy Spirit comes, he was going to help flesh out the truth of Jesus. Specifically, the truth that continues in Jesus. Look at what Hebrews chapter one says. It's gonna be on the screen for you. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also he created the world. See, we don't move beyond Jesus in our understanding of truth. That when the Holy Spirit were to come and and engage in this ministry as he has, he is speaking the things that he has heard and bringing them to mankind. He's, He's bringing that truth from Jesus to us and he's helping first and foremost the apostles understand the fullness of Jesus. We don't move beyond him. We move up into him and through him. As a, and we're gonna look at that in, in a verse in just a little bit. It's not talking about a truth that is outside of Jesus. Some kind of continual revelation or some new word from God that the Holy Spirit is continuing to bring. The church is rightfully skeptical. Anytime someone says, I have a new word from God because we've already got the word from God. And in these days, he's spoken through his son. It's not talking about that. Although, for those who love to read the Bible and think of themselves first and foremost, if you look at this and you take it and you just take the one, the one phrase that you really wanna focus in on and do it you know, in the spirit of you know, the, the champions of Philippians 4.13 or Jeremiah 29.11 and just let's focus in on just what we want and let's make it all about us, Take a look. He will guide you into all the truth in verse 13. We could just go for that and go, yeah. If I just ask God for any truth I want, he is going to deliver. Raise your hand if you got all the truth. No? This verse is in context here. It's in the context of the Holy Spirit helping the disciples fully understand the truth of Jesus. Guiding them into truth was not about guiding them into other truth or any truth that they wanted. Nor is it today. It's also not guiding into a truth that amounts to some form of Holy Spirit magic eight ball decision making. I know many of you in here, if not everybody in here would, understand, would, would know what the magic eight ball is that I refer to because you can still find them in the retro section at, at your uh, Cracker Barrel or other store, right? So the magic eight ball, right? You go into a corner and, and you, and you kind of take the eight ball and you shake it around and you, and you look and, and you just go, should I ask her out or not? And then you hope for something good. 
you, don't, you hope you don't get, <laughs> try it. Or I don't think so, or whatever other version's on there that's more insulting. But that concept has been translated and used as of the Holy Spirit as if when we're trying to make a hard decision, God has a, a specific will in for, for us to make in all of these decisions, that, that there is one option out of all the options that is his will for us, and we are supposed to discern and figure out what that mysterious will is. Our graduates had to make a big decision or are in the process of making a big decision of what college do I go to, what career do I go to? And they might have gotten accepted into many colleges and they're looking and saying, okay, well, God, which one of these is, is your will? And I'll tell you the same thing that I tell these graduates every year. If you wanna be able to lie your head down at night and know whether or not you are in the will of God, compare your life to this. This is the revealed will of God for your life. If you are, when you come up across a decision that, you're, that you are making and you're wondering, is it in the will of God? Compare it to this. Because this is the will of God for your life. And beyond that, pray for wisdom, pray for discernment and make the best possible choice that you can. But all too often we have people and it's, it's saddening to hear of the, of the stories of uh, People who, who say, but, you know, but, but I feel that God has told me to do this, including decisions that are clearly contrary to the truth of Scripture. If you want to know, read this, filter your decision making through this, and you'll know whether or not it's the will of God for your life. The last one to glorify Jesus. To glorify Jesus, verses 14 and 15. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He will glorify me. Similarly to how Jesus glorified the Father in his ministry on earth, the Holy Spirit glorifies the Son in his ministry on earth. And we get to be a part of that ministry. And like I said before, we don't, get, we don't move beyond Jesus as in like Jesus is, is there and he's important at salvation. Now what's next? That's not what maturity in Christ looks like. That's not what growing in our faith is supposed to be. It's not about trying to figure out what the next big thing is or the next really cool thing is. It's about diving deeper into the fullness of Jesus Christ. Take a look. The passage is gonna be on your screens. You can read along with me from Ephesians chapter four. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The Christian life is not about starting with Jesus and then moving past, moving on, 
The Christian life is about starting with Jesus and continuing with Jesus to the fullness that we can ever get to. And no, we don't ever get there. We never arrive as Christians. We're never done with our job in terms of learning the fullness of Jesus or living to the fullness of Jesus. It's an ongoing process. And if you have been, in, if you're in this room and you've been convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment and you are now following Christ, don't leave him here today. Walk through this week in the fullness of him to the best of your ability. But if you're in this room and and you're being convicted right here and now about sin and righteousness and judgment, my hope is that you wouldn't leave here today without letting us know so that we can walk alongside you and help you in your journey. You can write a note on the, on the Connect card or you can find me up front after service and I'd love to talk with you and we can try and help you through this journey if that's where you are today. But let's walk out of this place carrying the truth of scripture, worshiping the one true God. Not because we are special or because we deserve it because if you think that, you don't get it yet but because he first loved us. And now we get to love him.